The words fail a little bit. You invoke revolution, you immediately have to disavow most of what has been called revolution. I use the Greek theological language of kairos, the moment you know, which is not quite in time when things become possible that aren't normally possible. That was the sense of the time, and that was very much the sense of his work, was of a moment that could be seized to put the whole civilization on a different footing. What's up, everybody? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. In this week's episode, I am joined by David Cayley. David Cayley is the preeminent biographer of Ivan Illich. And as you know, I've been obsessed with Ivan Illich in recent weeks. My friend and I, Nina Power, are creating a course on Ivan Illich. Nina's going to be teaching it. I'm just, you know, adding it to my system of courses that I've been doing over the past year. And that'll be starting very soon at, at the time you hear this or see this. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes. But we wanted to bring on David because he pretty much knows more about Ivan Illich than anyone in the world. And he wrote this magisterial biography called Ivan Illich, An Intellectual Journey. And yeah, we just wanted to pick his brain because we still think that Ivan Illich is very underrated, underappreciated, and his ideas are just so prescient for the moment. He had a kind of systematic diagnosis of the problem of institutions in the 70s, way before the current crisis of institutions that, that we're facing today that now is, you know, everyone mistrusts institutions clearly. Technology is kind of overheating our traditional modern institutions, and now it's just chaos. And uh, we think that Illich holds some of the keys to what's going on right now. So I hope you enjoyed this. We talk about what Ivan Illich was like in the 1970s, how he was perceived ideologically. We talk about this, you know, Christian anarchist Roman Catholic priest that Ivan Il Illich was, and how that was understood ideologically back in the 70s and how that's different today. We talk about the problem of evil and the question of the Antichrist. We talk about all of these topics and and so much more, especially around COVID. We, we had a, a lengthy discussion around the politics of COVID and what Illich has to teach about understanding what's going on today with, you know, the, the conflict between uh, pro-vaccination people and so-called anti-vaxxers. We talked about Giorgio Agamben and how Illich's thought relates to Agamben, especially uh, specifically around the diagnosis of, of the COVID situation politically. So really important stuff here. David is an absolute mensch, a really brilliant, thoughtful guy. He actually had a very successful career as a, as a radio journalist in Canada as well. So it was a pleasure talking with him. I'm, I hope you enjoy it. And if you're interested in learning more about Avon Illich, please check out the course that Nina is doing. You can go to illichcourse.com and you can just learn more information there. There's a free study guide if you want to read Illich on your own. Uh, she gives you some suggested readings in a logical sequence. And the course itself is going to be an eight-week course, so it's really intensive. It's going to be a really good group. We always have excellent, excellent people in the courses that I've been running. That's been one of the standards and constants in all of the courses that we've done. It's, it's intensive, it's transformative, and you're going to meet excellent, excellent people with whom you'll develop serious intellectual relationships and hopefully keep them going in time. That's happened in the previous courses. These are potentially lifelong relationships and interlocutors that our courses are connecting people with. So I'm very proud of that. If that speaks to you, if that's something that you've been looking for in your life, please go check it out, illichcourse.com. People have loved them so far, and that's why I'm very pleased and excited to continue doing more courses around topics and thinkers that I think are really important and underrated. So, all right, on to the podcast. All right, welcome, everybody. I'm here with Nina Power and David Cayley. Nina is a friend of the show. She's been on many times. Many of you will know Nina already. She's doing a course on Ivan Illich uh, starting very soon. 
And David Cayley is probably the single person in the world who knows the most about Ivan Illich. He's a, he was a quite accomplished radio broadcaster uh, for a lot of his life and then became the preeminent biographer of Ivan Illich. So we're going to have uh, a discussion today about Ivan Illich, since Nina and I are both very interested in Ivan Illich, as we've been talking about in previous episodes, we just think he's he's very of the moment and uh, still remains very underrated. And and his his body of work holds so much interest for for the questions that people are interested in today. So yeah, we wanted to gain some of David's perspective. So David, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So the fir- the very first question I want to ask. David, for people who might not be familiar with your work or your own trajectory and your own relationship with with Ivan Illich, my understanding from the from the biography uh, Ivan Illich, an intellectual journey, is that your first real encounter with him was in the early '70s when you hosted him in your commune in Toronto. So I would like, if you don't mind, to just start with painting a little bit of a picture of of that scene. What what is your life like in the 1970s? What is Toronto like in the 1970s? And what kind of social and political milieu were you really embedded in when you first came across Ivan Illich and became deeply interested in him? Well, that could take the whole interview, couldn't it? But um, I had been for two years living in northern Borneo in eastern Malaysia uh, as a CUSO volunteer. Uh, The VSO was the English equivalent. The Peace Corps was the American equivalent. It was part of the development crusade. Uh, Not that I was especially interested in that, but I I was eager for experience and travel and... uh, I had ended up as a teacher in in this little Chinese village in northern Borneo. When I came back to Toronto in 1968, the first thing that really illuminated this perplexing experience for me was an an essay by Ivan Illich. It was actually a lecture he had given in Chicago. It still circulates on the internet, uh, usually under the title, which is not the title he gave it, To Hell With Good Intentions. But it was a talk to a group of young Catholic volunteers, the Conference on Inter-American Student Projects, it was called, uh, discouraging them from their development ambitions while encouraging them to travel and get to know their world. And I, uh, I took to Illich immediately and found that he was the best guide I could find. Uh, we brought him to Toronto in... Uh, 1970 for a big teach-in on development, so questioning the whole development enterprise. I guess you would say we were hippies. We were living in a a commune in the style of the time. Ivan was very much at home there. Uh, And he was then at at the height of an amazing uh, period of worldwide celebrity. He was very much in demand. And we turned people away that evening from a 600-seat auditorium in Toronto. Um, strangely, my future wife was in the audience, although we didn't yet know each other. Um, so, yeah, and that's not telling you much about the time, but how could one really describe the atmosphere of that time briefly? Let me ask a follow-up then to help narrow it down a little bit. The reason I asked the question is because basically... Yvonne Illich was basically something of a kind of Christian anarchist. And today, a lot of people have a hard time even understanding that there is a tradition that's both Christian and radical left that in in a lot of ways that that kind of ideological space has has closed down. So I think I was interested from your perspective about 
your social and political milieu, because my sense is that in the 70s, there was much more room for this uh, kind of intersection. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Like, you know, you were hippies, you lived in a commune, but you were also interested in this Roman Catholic priest. How was that different back then? Well, I, Ivan was a rare bird, and I'm sure we didn't have his full measure by any means. And a story I could tell was that um, in that fall of 1970, Canadians will remember this, others will not probably, but the government of Canada invoked, declared martial law, invoked what we call the War Measures Act because of two kidnappings in the province of Quebec of the British Trade Commissioner and the Minister of Labor in the province were kidnapped by a group called the Front de Libération Québécois. And um, my friends and I were all up in arms about this declaration of martial law, not exactly in support of the FLQ, but you can imagine, uh, had demonstrated and so on. Um, so I was surprised driving Ivan back from the airport in my old uh, beat-up car to find that he thoroughly approved of this decision of the government. He knew Pierre Trudeau, who was our prime minister at the time, and he felt that this very strong action was the right action to take at the time. So when this difference came out between us, he explained to me that he was not what he might appear to be uh, in terms of his, his current vogue made him appear as a man of the left. He preferred to think of himself as a man so radically traditional that he appeared avant-garde. Now, this was later, this paradox or oxymoron was later embodied in the term radical orthodoxy by some British theologians, uh, Catherine Mills, Catherine Mill, uh, John Milbank, Catherine Pickstock, and Graham Ward, amongst others, and they called themselves radically orthodox. I think Ivan was radically orthodox. He believed the tradition and change were an indissoluble pair. The tradition could lead change if people only understood things in that way. So, yes, he was an anarchist in a sense. He, he, he owned the name when he was challenged. Once when he was asked if he was an anarchist, he said he preferred his friend Paul Goodman's term, Neolithic conservative. Paul Goodman isn't always remembered now, but he was a a kind of godfather of the new left, but himself in some ways radically conservative. And Goodman's last book was called New Reformation Notes of a Neolithic Conservative. So Ivan said that would be his preferred name if he could, if he had to give himself only one political designation would be Neolithic Conservative. But what is that exactly? So, but you were interested in him, even though you were living in a commune and you were hippies and you were in this kind of radical left milieu, it sounds like. So that's what I'm really trying to understand, because I think a lot of people today, especially younger adults, just aren't really able to parse that. Um, when Today, when, when you think of, you know, um, radicals living in a commune, it's almost always very anti-Christian and also very... Um, anti-conservatism, like the idea of having a smart conservative in to, to give a talk is, is kind of unthinkable. So um, maybe there's nothing here and I'm kind of just uh, pushing you down a, a, a thread that you're not that interested in. But to me, there's just such a profound kind of difference between what, what it seems like your milieu was back with Illich and, and today. I just wonder if there's anything else you could you could say to that, but, but maybe not. Well, yes, I certainly recognize what you're saying. I mean, the Christian church has become the last acceptable scapegoat, and that was not true then. 
right? It has, it has become true since. Um, and the development crusade was perhaps the last great expression of Christian, of secularized Christian mission. Uh, so Ivan was a dissident Christian, you can say, I guess. And we, we, were not, we're not, we were not uneasy. He had by then already withdrawn from the church. He uh, was uh, subjected to inquisition by his church in 1968. It was a formal process of inquisition, although what had been called the inquisition had changed its name to the Holy Office by then. But he was put in an untenable position by the church and in effect rejected, so he formalized the rejection by withdrawing withdrawing uh, from the church. So he was not acting as a clergyman in any way during when, by the time we invited him to Toronto. But yes, there was not a, there was not a felt conflict there. But that, I, maybe you're getting at this, that soup, none of us really knew what it was, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a, I mean, I was, I was reading Marx and throwing the I Ching, let's say, or, you know, reading Jung. And I, I didn't know what, what this was that we were involved in. We, we certainly had a sense that the times they were changing, um, to coin a phrase, and, um, and Ivan had that sense too. He, he felt this was a now or never moment. Uh, he never changed that view. It's amazing. It was amazing to me when I went back over the books of that time to find out how deeply and how sincerely he believed that what he called de-schooling, for example, could occur, could and would occur. Um, so words fail a little bit. You know, you invoke revolution, you immediately have to have to disavow most of what has been called revolution. It's not easy to speak about, but he felt. I mean, I use the Greek theological language of kairos in the book. The moment you know, which is not quite in time when things become possible that aren't normally possible. Um, that, that was the sense of the time, and that was very much the, the sense of his work, was of a moment that could be seized to, to put the whole civilization on a different footing, right? Which, yeah. which, was, a, uh, which was, at the same time, the ambition to create what he called a new church, and to also recognize the whole architecture of secular institutions that he felt were going into what he called counterproductivity, right? Into a, a stage in which they would become completely chaotically unmanageable, uh, that those were also churches, as he later made clear, and also needed to be restrained, right? So the whole project of what he called a roof or the definition of a virtue of enoughness. There are various ways of saying it. A constitution of limits was the phrase I came up with. That was the project of the time, and we, we certainly were in accord with him on that, although you can see later, I hope I'm answering now your question a little bit, that, that this all came apart. The moment at which it came apart symbolically was his lectures on gender in Berkeley in 1982, when his progressive, progressive status, if you like, was was uh, formally withdrawn, and you know I he was think canceled, as was, they would say now. He, he was prematurely canceled. 
<laughs> that's good, yes. So, okay. Yeah, so, okay. but a lot of things held together for a time that later, I think properly, by their own nature, came apart and are, are now are now radically apart in a, okay. in a dangerous Fascinating. way. That's a very good answer. So what I'm hearing from you basically is that in the 1970s, when you're first encountering Illich and there's uh, this interest around him, things were just much less ideologically uh, rigid than they are today. Nowadays, everyone has these really well-developed sense of ideological boundaries and camps and tribes, and people police those borders. Whereas back in the 70s, it was much more open. It was much more fluid. You know, intellectuals were reading things from all over the place. And, you know, he was an interesting uh, kind of unique figure, but people didn't necessarily pin him into left or right. He could just be an interesting, uh, significant thinker, and people would want to hear from him in a hippie commune or elsewhere. And so... That's clearly, I think, very different than than the the landscape we're in today. And in some ways, I think we can understand the landscape we're in today as the coming to fruition of the uh, institutional problems that Illich really seemed to uh, to sense and and to predict and and to diagnose. So, Nina, by the way, you know, feel free to jump in at any time if you want to if you want to chime in with anything. But um, I think maybe what would be uh, good for for the audience next is to just talk a little bit about his overarching critique of institutions and 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 kind of the 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 overarching one of the overarching messages that Illich really uh, left the world which left the world with which is this idea that basically um, the the corruption of the best is the worst this is something that you write a lot about in the biography it's clearly a kind of catchphrase that I think uh, is is perhaps more than any other, uh, kind of really summarizes w one of the key ideas uh, undergirding all of Illich's work and ideas. I wonder if we can unpack this a little bit for the audience who might not be super familiar with Illich yet. Basically, this this comes from a old Latin phrase, and he's basically referring to Christianity, namely that you know the the glory and the significance of Christianity uh, is precisely such that if it gets corrupted, then it's going to be the worst thing ever. If Christianity is the best thing ever, it's it's corruption is the worst thing ever. So, something like this, uh, and that's basically his his meta narrative for for you know the history of the West and and so. I'm just curious that people might be familiar, David, with that uh, kind of basic line, his, his basic theory that modernity is basically the perversion of, of Christianity. But what in this uh, kind of simplistic way of putting it, what, what do people miss? You know, what, what, what is something that people might not appreciate about this idea um, just from reading the books, something that maybe from knowing him or from your years of reflecting on this, on this idea, um, what about this idea or this conversation would, might people not understand or appreciate well, <clears throat> it's off the top of my head, but um, the incarnation, the idea that the Word has become flesh, that God is among us as a person. It took a long time for this to even be defined by Christians, but that this is a, a uniquely volatile idea. My uh, a, a British teacher of mine, David Martin, who died recently, a sociologist, um, is conceived the incarnation as the breaking of the atom of religion uh, the, and, and with a comparable release of power to the breaking of the atom. So this, this was, uh, in Ivan's terms, he used the paradigm, he used the story of the um, Samaritan as a paradigm of the New Testament. So in the story to, in effect, enemies uh, are joined together Right? The Samaritan belongs to the northern 
kingdom of Israel. There's, there's ill will between Judea and the old northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the Samaritan ought to have nothing to do with the man who lies wounded in the ditch. And instead he goes to his aid. And this moment, which is a declaration of the freedom to love beyond any boundary and any restriction, is, is a symbol for Ivan of that volatility. Because it, it breaks boundaries, and with the breaking of boundaries, you can, in the glimmering on the very distant horizon, you see globalization, right? You see this universal dissolution of everything that has kept human beings contained in, in worlds in which they can fully live. Um, so how the gospel will be taken becomes the crucial question. And when it is institutionalized, so an institution takes it upon itself to enforce, to guarantee this, this extremely volatile idea, then the worst, in his view, is created over time. The best becomes the worst. And so that's a very short attempt to say what he meant by that. Um, now, when you, when you get to what he was actually doing in the, in the 60s and the early 70s, he spent the first part of his life, I mean, he was a parish, he was a, quite a devoted parish priest and a, interested in the philosophy of mission, but he also preached what he called a new church, right, which was a church conceived in a different way in this light, um, a, a, a non-compulsory, a non-power-centered church that didn't derive its its structure from political models, right? Whether it was a, you know, a, I mean, a, the papacy is still a constitution, is a monarchy, right? It's conceived as a monarchy. It's the last, in a way, monarchy still exercising full power. Um, well, power anyway. So, he he can see that that he was in effect uh, thrown out of the church. He applied the same thinking to the institutions that he saw as descended from the church. That is, they all embodied this ambition, this spiritual ambition, which was unusual. Schools were schools to him. Compulsory schooling was a world church. It wasn't. It wasn't a practical enterprise. It wasn't a way. He never opposed schooling as a practical arrangement for imparting information under certain circumstances. He ran a language school in Cordovaca. He had nothing against schools as such. It was the enrolling of everyone in this project in effect of salvation um, that he objected to. So he applied that analysis to first to de-schooling, and the, what is interesting about his de-schooling proposal and what was largely missed at the time in the commentary and is missed still today is that it was a constitutional proposal. The first chapter is called Why We, Why we Must Disestablish Education. Well, establishment is a word that historically has referred to churches. Right? The state shall make no law with respect to, to the, an establishment of religion is the first amendment to the American Constitution. So he was calling for disestablishment, for an end to privileges based on schooling. If you are applying for a job emptying garbage cans into a truck, there's no reason 
that you have to have gone through 12 grades of or 12 degrees of this education. The question is, are you able to empty the cans into the truck? But everything is, everything is now keyed to this worldwide bureaucracy, and, and it, it is, so it is formally an establishment. Without its certification, you can't do many things, even though you may be competent to do them. So that was his great point. Uh, yeah. And he, he then claimed the same thing with respect to uh, medicine, medical nemesis, and tried to create a kind of general philosophy of tools in a book called Tools for Conviviality, which is, again, a call for a constitution of limits. Right. So he had this kind of vast anti-institutional critique, and he just basically kind of went down the line, one, after, one institution after the next, demolishing them all uh, theoretically. And you alluded before, David, to this felt moment at the time where, you know, he really thought that there there could be a revolution in a kind of anti-institutional revolution and things like de-schooling society and, you know, de-institutionalizing healthcare and things like this. So I have to ask, I'm just super curious to know if you had to guess, you know, um, what do you think went wrong? Like what, why, why was that revolutionary moment aborted or, or why did it not come to fruition as, as many at the time thought that it would? Well, I, I think a short answer that would be given from a Christian perspective would be sin. Uh, but I, I think what Ivan concluded was that, that the, the certainties in which these institutions are anchored are very much deeper than the level on which he was arguing, right? So he, he described his work of the early 70s as the work of a pamphleteer, which I, th- I think he thought that was an, he didn't mean to, uh, you know, to speak in a deprecating way of it. He, he regarded that as an honorable activity, but he was, he was rabble-rousing or pamphleteering. He was trying to convince people uh, with arguments that this would be a good idea. Um, and he, he sometimes said that he, he knew de-schooling society was in vain be, be, before the book was ever while the book was at the publishers, but certainly by the later 70s, he could see that none of these things were going to occur. And so he, that, that, that initiated, if you want to divide it into stages, a, a kind of second stage of his historical research in which he tried to understand, to take the example of education. Uh, he began to see that economic ideas and particularly the myth of scarcity which is a founding assumption in economics, which is that things are inherently scarce. Whether they're actually rare or abundant is not the point. The point is human beings are made to compete over scarce resources. There will always, there will never be enough. Desire is limitless. Therefore, uh, and education was conceived that way. He he concluded that edu- formal compulsory education was he said, learning under the assumption of scarcity, the assumption that the resources for this enterprise um, would all, were inherently scarce and therefore must be husbanded in specialized institutions. And so long as that belief prevailed, those specialized institutions would be relatively invulnerable. Um, okay. And you, so see, you see in the pandemic uh, the anxiety that if you miss a few weeks of school, you may be disabled for life. <laughs> yeah. It's astonishing. I yeah. read many serious articles in the last year in which claimed that a few weeks out of school and you might never catch up. So 
the you, whole of it. You, know, you look like you're chomping to, yeah, get in. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, so many things to say. And um, first of all, I'd just like to say I'm so pleased that you could come on, David. And um, I'm such a big fan of all of your work on Illich. But, uh, you know, I'm just reading back over your um, these older conversations you had, which I think it sort of came out originally in like 1982, uh, 1992, sorry. And also Rivers, Rivers North of the Future. And, you know, there's there's so much work as well as in the intellectual journey. But one thing I wanted to say at the um, the outset was also how um, how sort of moving and what a model it is to 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 read your own blog and your own work where you seek you know very very thoughtfully if you like to apply the ideas of Illich and not only Illich but also Girard and these other figures that you're very close to um, to contemporary issues right in a very very real sense and I think. In the last year and a half or so, so few supposed academics or intellectuals have been thinking at all. I think there's been a kind of absolute um, abandonment of thought and feeling in relation to the current situation um, at all levels. And there's instead, there's just been a kind of conformism and a fear. And I would say that the only, you know, some of the only thinking people would be you using Illich to think about the pandemic um, and also Agamben, you know, not unrelatedly. And of course, Agamben is somebody who um, himself draws upon Illich to some extent um, and has defended the relevance of, of Illich. And I wonder about perhaps even in it just because in Illich's own lifetime, these things didn't fall apart. These institutions didn't, um, you know, their counterproductivity didn't um, culminate in a mass sort of disestablishment. That doesn't mean that that isn't going to happen, right? And I wonder if we are seeing, in fact, uh, a kind of mass, almost, um, I don't know, lack of belief or lack of commitment, not only on the part of institutions themselves, which appear in many cases to have given up on their founding values and in the sense of being corrupt. Um, you know, many um, educational institutions and art institutions and so on no longer seem committed, for example, to freedom of expression or dialogue or genuine kind of, um, you know, uh, putting people with different views together or anything like that. They're dominated only by a sense of uh, uh, profit and a sense of kind of not wanting to um, cause any too much trouble. Um, and, you know, the same would go for many, many, many institutions at the same time as this kind of rapid incursion into everyday life of various forms of technology, monitoring, surveillance on a scale that is becoming increasingly rapidly apparent um, and is very, very frightening, in fact, and I think will only be prevented by a kind of mass global refusal of these, um, you know, very rapidly introduced uh, forms of uh, technology um, if it's not already too late. But I think it's not too late. And so I wonder, I mean, in the sense that I think a lot of people are feeling that Illich's time has perhaps really come, <laughs> even if he's no longer here. And I, I think in terms of his own relation to temporality, I mean, a, a spiritual or Christian temporality is a different uh, thing than a political temporality. You know, it, it doesn't, it's not the lifetime of one person. It's the, it's the kind of spirit, the entire age. And, you know, maybe we won't be here to see, see everything that we would like to see. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose <laughs> this is a great long way round of asking you an opening question, but um you know, given your commitment to, in a way, thinking through the problems of the contemporary, using Illich as a thinker um, in all your work and your and your your sort of dedication and your faithful to these thinkers. I was just reading 
earlier today, catching up on your blog, this debate that you've been having over the question of life, you know, that that, that you've been criticised by um, Pri and Palava, however you pronounce their names, over the use of, of life um, in the debate around the pandemic and this question of what it means to be alive and the question of risk. And clearly, in terms of thinking about the corruption of the best is, is the worst, you know, the idea of protecting life um, has become something of an absolute um, mania, you know. So, like, life, whatever that means, must be protected at all costs to the extent that it is perhaps no longer life as we might conceive it or that as we might want to live it. Um, and I'm just wondering, in terms of the contemporary and, you know, your own commitment to applying Illich and others to contemporary problems, if you could say, you know, about your, your current motivation, the current things that are sort of possessing you <laughs> um, to think about? Well, I think, first of all, that Illich is, is a, a very practical thinker. That, that's one of the things that distinguishes him, I think, is that you're, and th this has um, been sometimes misunderstood. I, I had a bit of a controversy with a man called Todd Hart, who wrote the first big book in English on Illich uh, called The Prophet of Cuernavaca, and taught as an historian, uh, but he he had, took the idea that he, he had really uncovered Illich as a apophatic theologian. He said, with a theologian of the negative way. So, but he kind of went on then to suggest that his critiques were all veiled theologies, or they were all always about the church. And I think that's quite mistaken. I think. Deschooling Society is definitely a book about schools, and Medical Nemesis is definitely a book about medicine, and that's really, and Tools for Conviviality is definitely a book about techniques and about scale and about a lot of practical questions, and that that really distinguishes Ivan from a lot of other thinkers who, in a certain way, keep it more abstract. Um, that that So, he, yes, I think he really... Uh, he. We're not dealing with an abstract problem. We're dealing with actual institutions which need to be limited, changed, or if not rigorously avoided, or at least that people need to know what they're dealing with, um, with this, as you described, sort of total project of social control. So that that's the first thing. The other thing is that I, I, I don't know if I would quite agree to applying Illich in the sense that I think we it's more like sharing a mind with someone than, than, than applying. It's, it's having a thought w with him and to some extent within him for so long that that's just uh, how I am. But the last year has been very disturbing. Uh, and, and I've had people say, well, but you predicted this, or you must have expected this. Well, yes, okay, fair enough. But, you know, to predict something or to expect something is different than to experience it. And I, I have been amazed. Uh, I, I, I think most of the, you know, because of how I live, I, I'm, a, I'm an intellectual, yes, but I, I'm also a musician and a hockey player. And I, 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 I well, I can't play <laughs> I can't play hockey anymore, but I've kept in touch with my old friends. And so I see a lot of people who are not, let's say, like me or are not thinking as I'm thinking. And the extent to which people have gone along with this uncritically uh, has been a kind of eye-opener for me, right? 
So um, Ivan in Tools for Conviviality says there are three conditions for recovery, what he calls recovery, which is bringing our living back within bounds. Um, and the first one is to overcome what he calls the delusion about science. The second is to recover language uh, from the from whoever colonizes speech. And the third is, is um, use the law to defend people. Now, that could be taken as referring to politics more generally, but I'm interested in the first one, the delusion about science, right? It's astonishing to me that we've gone through a whole year, two, almost a year and a half now, in which people have claimed to be following science. Uh, one, first, when there was no science, and second, when the science was deeply divided, and third, when they didn't even know what the science was. So this, this delusion has very much strengthened its hold, I think, during the, la during, during the um, last year. Uh, incivility has just become astonishingly bad. Um, and, you know, uh, we have a premier here in Ontario who is, would have been considered a, a man of the populist right, who when demonstrators appeared outside the legislature um, pretty early on in the lo first lockdown, uh, referred to them as yahoos. Like anyone who dissented, anyone who disagreed was a yahoo. So there never was, we have had um, an effective censorship. Um, all scientific dissensus, dissent, has been kept out of our, pretty rigorously kept out of our main media outlets. I'm talking about the CBC, where I worked all my life. I'm talking about the major newspapers. To the extent that I can follow it, I don't think anybody following those media would have any idea of the extent to which older public health professionals regard this policy that we followed of mass quarantine as, as a dangerous novelty. There are maybe even a majority of the older public health people feel this way. No one would know that. Um, the, the Great Barrington Declaration to take three eminent and distinguished epidemiologist who disagreed. That never appeared in any of our, that has not been discussed in any of our major media. So it's, it's amazing to me to see this manifestation of, of a combination of thoughtlessness and incivility. And so my preoccupation is with, peace, is with peacemaking and with um, trying to plead for the conditions on which people will clarify their assumptions, will recognize that these philosophical differences need to be aired, right? That to, to create a scarecrow called the anti-vaxxer, for example, um, when these are people who on philosophical grounds um, disagree. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't recognize that they disagree on philosophical grounds. You treat them as an a, a scarecrow, an enemy group. Um, so dissent is is pushed to the right. The center is destroyed. Any basis for discussion is destroyed. Um, and you know, a, a a pretty bad circumstance, as you yourself just outlined, is 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 revealed, is is brought into the light. So I, what I'm interested in is people finding each other and 
and talking. And I, I, I can see this roughly on the, on the analogy of monasticism. I, I mean, it's, it's a very misleading analogy. I mean, we're not a thing like Benedict and his brothers or their successors. And yet, what were Benedict and his brothers doing in the, in the, in the collapse of the Roman Empire? They were creating a place where certain things would be preserved, passed on. They were, in fact, the seed of a new civilization, as Agamben has recently, I think, argued. And others have always seen this. Um, so I think we need to be such a seed or try to be such a seed and we need to find and cherish each other and uh, talk to one another and yeah. and 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 begin a, a diplomatic or peacemaking mission to try and get people to talk right the cbc yeah. my my old lifelong employer the cbc ought to be such a venue but it's it's not it's a monoculture of a certain kind of correct opinion that that pertains i think to a minority of the population but that's never really noticed because it's an echo chamber um, right so i so don't know that... have i begun to answer your question nina at all no comple completely I have so many things I want to say more in relation, but Justin, did you want to? No, I was just going to follow on that by saying that, yeah, the, the, the political response to COVID has basically been this kind of perfect storm of Illichian nightmare dynamics, basically. It's like uh, we have incredibly overzealous institutions with uh, extraordinarily high confidence uh, in their own judgments, enacting extraordinarily high leverage policies on the rest of society, namely shutting down entire economies for the most part for extended periods of time, um, combined with a increasing feebleness in the actual intellectual uh, sophistication and reliability of these institutions. As you see with like the CDC flip-flopping on various issues, you should wear masks, you shouldn't wear masks. And it's increasingly clear now to most people that these institutions, which have some kind of claim to to a monopoly of, of expert input are nonetheless engaged in this kind of naked noble lie kind of mentality where they consider themselves um, in the right to tell the population whatever they need to tell the population in order to produce whatever instrumental effects the experts and the politicians believe they should be uh, producing on, on the population. And yet this whole system is now breaking down and it's being laid bare. And now everyone sees that this is how it works. So you can now see and watch the emperors who have no clothing, basically trying to perform these kind of noble lie uh, mechanics. And now average people just see through it. They're laughing at it and they uh, correctly are now decreasing their confidence in expert judgments coming down from on high from the institutions. And so there is truly this kind of dramatic um, demonstration of the Elitian critique of institutions combined with a kind of sudden and rather remarkable kind of public disillusionment. Like people are waking up to this basically, and now it's causing this extraordinary strife and, and chaos really, because the people aren't People are no longer trusting institutions, and this is going to have profound implications for behavior and for for how things how things happen in, in the in uh, moving forward. And so, I mean, I think Nina wanted to maybe jump in with 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 a follow on. So feel free to do so if you want to, Nina. Yeah, it looked like you were getting revved up. <laughs> no, um, definitely, and I, I think it's it's all of the things that Illich 
focuses on and comes to focus on that you're also drawing out, like the idea of, of dialogue, of presence, of friendship. Um, and, you know, not incidentally, those are all of the things that are being eroded and dissolved at a vast rate of knots. I mean, in an ideal world, we would be in the same place. We would be sitting outside. We would be having a conversation. You know, we're not. We're in our individual pod or wherever <laughs> having this conversation using technology you know we, we, we are lacking presence we are you know we're using tools you know with all of their faults and and distance distanciation and you know it, again it's it's the kind of relevance of illich and the very specific points and, and i think this is what goes beyond left and right and and this is a problem i mean the moment you kind of dissent from the you know like you said the the monoculture the the monologic of today you immediately get attacked everybody gets attacked for being like a reactionary or being accused of being far right or whatever whatever the worst thing that someone can think to say about you they will if you dissent on any of the the kind of major issues um that you're supposed to have the correct line on and i think one of the, the things i really want to draw out in illich when i'm reading him and, and teaching and thinking about him is this um this other perspective basically I mean, you, you you use these phrases like Neolithic conservative or radical orthodoxy, which obviously has a a, a meaning. Um, but there's this kind of spiritual dimension or this relation to tradition and to culture, which is um, pre-political, right? In a sense, it's drawing on the reality of um, history and people's lives and their bodies and the reality of, let's say, the difference between men and women, you know, and I don't think it's a surprise that it was this book on gender that got Illich in trouble at this, you know, in the, at that time. And, and in a way, those problems have remained, you know, they those questions are the same questions, of course they are, because, you know, unlike the fantasies of the technophilic left and, you know, the endless growth, and there's nothing that differentiates vast quantities of the left from the, uh, you know, the fantasies and projections of Silicon Valley, you know, the left is no longer, it seems to me, uh, in large part, any form of opposition. It's not defending um, freedom. It's not asking these questions, you know, these scientific questions. It's not defending the reality of the human um, and all of our needs and desires, um, but instead is engaging in delusional speculative things that completely distantiate ourselves from each other and from reality. And I, I suppose it's this this other position, I suppose, that I really want to take from Illich, the possibility of having this thought and this living critique that is that is heartfelt and spiritual and um real <laughs> you know and and i think there is a community as, as justin says i agree i think they're you know profound dissatisfaction dissolution everyone's waking up in, you know to the, the the collapse of institution and the positive part of that if there is time left you know is to in a way gather together and 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 to think in a you know potentially a lichian way but not only you know about how to to proceed i suppose it, in relation to limit you know questions of degrowth questions of the environment questions of you know care and compassion that, that don't depend upon the state which is you know falling apart collapsing well i think david was right to intimate before that what you're seeing in response to this accelerating crisis of the institutions is people are realizing they need now to actually just form real living, breathing relationships and communities with other people that they can trust. Because moving forward, it seems like that's the only 
really promising epistemological solution to the 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 cultural and cognitive chaos of of just what is going on, what is the truth, what is really happening on on any given day. It's like to even have any sort of grounding in reality, you need to now build your own communities where you have a collection of independent judgments that you anchor off of because you really can't anchor off of any of the previously existing anchors that would kind of, um, you know, hold people um, uh, to some kind of fixed cognitive or epistemological uh, correlates. And so I think this is actually a good thing in a way because now you're seeing uh, way more people who are really smart and ambitious people who previously would have just, you know, enjoyed their life in their like suburban household. Now, like really smart, accomplished, ambitious people are starting to think about, you know, how to build their own communes or how to do these kind of crazy commun- communitarian experiments, because it's now a kind of matter of life or death. It's like, this is how you're going to survive the future. This is going to be the high status thing to do. This is going to be the thing that leads to success uh, in, in, in life in in kind of the uh, the context that, that we're facing. That's at least how it looks like to me. Um, and so, um, yeah, I don't know if either of you want to speak to that. Maybe uh, sometimes people accuse me of, be, of being too optimistic, something I hear a lot, but, but it seems to me like as the, the institutions are becoming worse and worse, it's actually uh, forcing people to pursue new forms of life in a matter that's a little bit more consistent with someone like Ivan Illich or Giorgio Gambin. And I'm actually quite bullish on 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 this. I, I, I think on net, you know, the next few decades are going to be good for this reason. Well, I think, I mean, optimism, pessimism, I mean, you know, these are perspectival questions in a certain way. So I'm, your optimism is music to my ears uh, because no one knows what's going on, right? This is, I mean, the to go back to the theme of science, it's, it's interesting to me that at a time when it appears to me that people are thinking for themselves as never before, not always thinking well, I didn't know one of me understood as saying that, but thinking for themselves, that this is considered to be anti-science, right? that the, 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 the possibilities created by the internet for people to find their own sources of information, to form their own conceptions, you know, they, those, are, those are potential goods, but they also create a chaotic situation, a chaotic and frightening situation, which is easily construed as a war on science or as, right? So there's this, this reactionary um, move. It becomes very tempting. So I, uh, just to tell a quick story, I, um, during my later years at, at CBC Radio's Ideas, I did a a series on science called How to Think About Science that was so long that it was a cause of great amusement to my colleagues. It was 24 broadcasts, 24 hours. But it was an attempt to canvas all the interesting work in the history and philosophy of science in the last couple of generations to to create a diff, to overcome the delusion about science, if you like, and to create a realistic image of science, what it, what it really is as opposed to its myth. Uh, uh, as an omniscient oracle. Um, and as soon as, um, well, within a couple of years of my leaving ideas, uh, the figure of the war, of a war on science became established in Canada. Our Prime Minister Stephen Harper was said to be conducting this war. A convenient scapegoat is created. And then the old myth of science is reinstituted. And I think this is what we're facing, is that in the 
in the face of these scary phenomena of all kinds, that reaction is the most comforting stance, right? We're going to re, we're going to restore faith in science, or we're going to restore faith in journalism, or we're going we're going to go back to some mythical condition which is said to have disappeared. So it seems to me that which both of you have been saying, the challenge is to is to find new ground. We have a few people in the room watching this at the moment, and I want to give them an opportunity to ask some questions. We actually have some very interesting people in the room with us today. So if you're out there watching right now, you can make a little request to come on stage if you have a good question, and then it'll just prompt you to, to type in your question. I'll get to see it. And if it's a good question, I'll bring you on stage. So uh, please don't be shy. Uh, join us join us, and contribute to the conversation if you'd like. Uh, first up, I have a request here from Antranig. I'm going to uh, bring you up, Antranig. Oh, thanks. Yes, well, I'm as we speak, my, my wife is trying an experiment of the kind you described to create a new community. On, you see behind me a wreck on the West Yorkshire Moors. Um, I, 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 I and a few others recently tried to run a workshop that was inspired by Illich's ideas for technologists, and we found it essentially impossible to interest or engage anyone with the notion of responsible limitation of power and to, to engage solidly with the ideas of conviviality. And I, and I see, you know, beneath even all these issues about whether we're trying to restore a model of science or an idiom which either did or didn't exist, how do we create a taste for the limitation of power? How do we promote the aesthetic, as I see it, of, of Illich? and make it seem attractive against the background of the culture that we have now? Excellent question. Thank you so much for that. I, David? I wish I could answer it. <laughs> I have a feeling you would have a more interesting answer to that question than I would, because you, perhaps you've thought about it more. But it is, um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I really, what do you think? I'm, I'm at a loss. I mean, even amongst the organizers of the workshop, we found still there, there was the totalizing tendency of science, the, the, the desire for more certainty, the desire for more power, uh, more control over the environment. There was very little taste for limitation of power and for the establishment of ignorance. Yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't it go back to the, the second point that David uh, mentioned about the uh, recovery of language. And I think Illich was very careful when he's talking about technology to talk rather about tools and in a way to to kind of move backwards to, if you like, an earlier paradigm, as he does with many things, I suppose, to remind us of the human relation to things that we use. You know, obviously, we're a tool use species, but to talk about this thing, technology is to kind of reify it and make it into a spaceship, you know, speculative and, and you know, fetishistic, um, uh, you know, commitment, I suppose. Whereas if you talk about tools and individual things that we use and the limits to those and to compare one way of doing things with another, then it be, yeah, becomes much more kind of practical and immediate and embodied, um, I suppose, rather than this kind of freewheeling, spinning out into space uh, type fantasy. And, and in a way that the, the underlying question would always be something like, well, what kind of life do we want to have? You know, I mean, it's, it's to live, you know, to, to be convivial, to live together in a beautiful, graceful way, you know, and this idea of graceful play, which is so important to Illit in that book and elsewhere. And I mean, this idea of slowing down and, and ideas about degrowth, um, you know, that a lot of people are talking about now, 
And I, I suppose to get away from like this horrible combination of a kind of nihilism and guilt about our kind of consumption was kind of inhibiting um, um, towards something, uh, I don't know, much, much sort of slower. Like we, we, in a way, we have everything we need already. Like that's, that's kind of the point. And I think that's why the critique of scarcity that you have in Illich, but also in someone like Bataille, you know, who says, look, in a way, we've got more than we could ever need, like this infinite gift of the sun, this sort of excess of existence. You know, it's a very interesting relation between Illich and Bataille. If we start there and if we say, look at the relations we do have, look at the our access to to all these things, you know, then then that kind of limits our, you know, fetish for, you know, for more, for more tools, more technology. It seems as if in Illich's own the, the things that come to mind are the essays in his book, Shadow Work, where he specifically discusses these aesthetic questions and is really very positive about the, the growth and, and spread of what I guess you could call a hippie aesthetic, a, a taste, as you said so nicely, for, for limitation, um, is, is, is often what Andre Gortz called the archipelago of conviviality, which he then saw as spreading. Um, and much of the work in, uh, in shadow work and the idea of defining a vernacular space, um, creating this taste for the home made and unsupervised, does come a cropper uh, in his experience with gender. Right, this because he comes to the conclusion then that really the women's movement is 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 the biggest contradiction. Um, he's he becomes convinced that in in the hands of that much rests in in how the women's movement understands things. And you know when he was kind of shot down over gender, that you can take that as a symbolic moment. I think I don't know if you know the story at all, but but he. He gave some lectures um, in in uh, in Berkeley in 1982, which were published in a book called Gender, and he basically argued that the beginnings of capitalism can be understood as the demise of gender. That is, that the fundamental principle of limitation is is that there is more than one kind, right? That there are things that only there are things that can only be imagined. There are things that only the other can do. He he expanded that symbolically as as the essence of limitation of a world in which things, as he says, cannot outgrow their size. So he somehow manages to make gender the founding principle of uh, a world in which things have a proper size and a proper fit uh, and. You know that that argument was never taken up, never understood. The meaning that he tried to ascribe to the word gender was uh, reversed. It's it's now the opposite of of what he said. And I don't know if that provides any sort of a a clue, right? But it it wow. seems it seems as if the answer the short answer to your question is that there's a contradiction between universality and and this aesthetic of which, this taste, and this aesthetic of which you speak. Uh, well, and the gender, if I can interject, gender, I, mean, I, think, I think people, yeah, yeah, I, I, people can maybe can guess my answer to this question, which is that I think that the, the use of digital technologies is still very underexplored. I mean, we're still just at the very beginning of 
of what digital technologies can do. And, you know, Illich was not anti-technology. It's not like um, he's saying we should never use technology. We just need to be more clever with it. And, you know, it's the, the very idea of tools for conviviality. Tools are tools are technology. We want technologies for conviviality. And I think we're still at the very, very beginning of learning how to use digital technologies for these purposes. And this is obviously a major part of my mission with my podcast that 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 we're on right now. It's I, I think that we, we can get way more clever and sophisticated using digital technologies and interweaving them with real life relationships and communities. Um, and it doesn't need to be universalizing, right? You can do a podcast and a community around the podcast and um, that that blends in with in real life, uh, you know, physical relationships and structures. And it can it can be a small niche project and you can still have a healthy 25,000 strong community of people who really know each other and understand each other and identify with each other. So niche and scale on the internet can still be really quite massive, even if it's non-universalizing. That can really make an impact. And then when you imagine many other groups and communities learning how to use these tools for conviviality, to me, that's I'm still very bullish on that. And I think we just are in the early days of figuring out how to do it personally. He seemed to take the idea of prophecy as a prefiguration of the incarnation pretty seriously. So he felt that the function of prophets in the Old Testament had been absorbed uh, and that the prophet role, and I, I, I leave it to New Testament scholars to judge whether this is a sound idea or not. There Prophets are mentioned in the New Testament and Ivan conceived that their um, role was to discern the presence of Antichrist. Now, whether that's others have said that their their role was more to pass on the oral gospel until such time as it was written down. But but um, when he was asked, this story is related in uh, in one of my earlier books. He, Romano Prodi, who was the brother of one of its dear friends, Paolo Prodi, a, an historian. Romano Prodi was uh, prime minister of Italy for a time in the 90s, and Romano approached him after a meeting and said, well, what you've just said appears to me to be a continuation of prophecy for our time. And he said, no, the, the time of the prophet is over, Romano, but I, I think the, this, this office, in a way, is now belongs to the friend. Uh, this role belongs to the friend. So he conceived friendship as the continuation of prophecy. Now, if, if that's an interest, but I think it gives it gives some idea of how important of the importance he attached to friendship as a political virtue as well. Absolutely, that was fantastic. Thank you so much, David, for your time. This was really, really great, and I think that's as nice a final line as any. That friendship is successor of. Prophecy. I think that's something we'll all be uh, thinking about for quite some time. Thank you for your time, David. We're all big fans, and uh, we're just grateful for your for your time and attention today. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review and it'll send you an apple podcast just leave a review you can be honest tell me what you really think i'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and i'm really trying to grow out the podcast so thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review i really appreciate it